All right. Well, we're in this series called uh, Can We Really Change? And we're going to take um, this week and then one more Sunday next week to kind of close out this series. But we've been talking about this idea of change, of spiritual change, of transformation, of, of maturity and growth into godliness. And how does, how does one who has uh, come to know God, how does one who has been reconciled to Jesus, how does that person change? How does that person grow? Does that person kind of stay the same for the rest of their lives and their thoughts and their behaviors and how they treat people, how they go about their work, or is there something that God wants to do beyond just saving them and reconciling them to, to God? And so when we, we talk about change, when we talk about spiritual transformation, I think it's easy to think of change as something that happens just kind of magically or mystically, right? But I want to suggest to us that change is actually comes, comes in the more of a mundane process than more of a mystical process. And it's because change actually occurs through the regular daily diet of having God's word in us. The regular daily diet of having God's word, I would even say nourish us, feed us, and help us to grow. I want to give you guys my main idea before we launch into this. The, the main idea for today is this, that God uses, okay, God uses his word to us to work in us. God uses his word that has been given to us to do an incredible and deep work in us. Change, spiritual growth, maturity, and transformation, that God uses his word to us to do his work in us. The problem that we face, though, is that God's word to us isn't always in us. Amen by myself. All right, I don't know about you, all right, but I know for me that God's word to me isn't always in me. I remember being in a seminary class years ago, and my professor was kind of speaking to pastors and, and, and maybe even more specifically worship leaders, people who were conducting a worship set. And this professor said this. They said, uh, she said that whenever you guys, whenever you, you orchestrate and, 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 and conduct a worship service, make sure that there are songs in that worship set that are rich in theology and doctrine. And she said, because a lot of people in the church actually get more theology from songs we sing than the scripture we read. And I thought, I, I, was, I was taken aback. I was, I was kind of, I thought in one sense, that's a, really, uh, that's a really deep insight into what's happening, maybe, maybe just in the Western church, but that's a really good insight into what's happening, that oftentimes it's the songs we sing, the lyrics that we sing actually are more impactful to us and more influential to us in our theology of who God is and who we are and who we are in the world, maybe even more so than the scripture that God has given to us. And I thought to myself, but should that be the case? Should it be that way? And I think the obvious answer is that it should probably be the other way around where the scripture should be our authority. Not the songs we sing, though I think a lot of the songs we do sing provide incredible theology, incredible, deep, and rich doctrine, but it's the word that God give, has given to us that actually should do the deep work in us. 
There was a, uh, a study done um, not too long ago about how, you know, I won't go into the details, but a study done of just basically how the Western church, the church in the U.S. and church in America uh, is, is declining uh, in, in, in biblical literacy. It, basically what it's saying is that people in the Western church are becoming more and more uh, Bible illiterate, not understanding the truths of the Bible, not, not digging in, into the Bible for its daily um, source of, of growth. And I thought that's, that's odd because every statistic would show you that even now in every generation that the Bible is actually the best-selling book of all time. Did you guys know that? The Bible is the best, maybe the most stolen book too, like in hotels and stuff. I'm sure people take those for free. But the Bible is in every generation, even till now, the, the best-selling book of all time. They say an average of 50 books are sold every minute. Every minute, 50, this is, so this is a, on a global scale, 50 books are sold every single minute. One study showed that between the years of 1816... In 1975, roughly 2,458,000,000 Bibles were printed. And then just about 17 years later in 1992, that number increased almost or more than double to 6 billion printed Bibles all across the world in more than 2,000 languages and dialects. And in the English language alone, there are over 450 translations And even in this room, we probably have different translations of the same English Bible. There's the ESV, NIV, you know, ACV, RCV, whatever. Basically, if you take the alphabet and you put three letters together, you might have a a translation, right? There's there's a good chance. And so just, just so that we're aware, this is not just about the printed, you know, hard copy Bibles, but now we have access to Bibles everywhere on your computer, on your tablets, and on your smartphone, it's crazy to, like, to think, like, if Apostle Paul were here and he knew that we have the Bible in our pocket, I think that would blow his mind. To, to have that, because they, they actually died for the sake of the gospel. And yet, to know that we have the access, that kind of access to the Bible is incredible. So the problem is not getting the Bible to the people. The problem is getting the people to the Bible. The problem is not that there is a limited resource and limited amount of printing and limited access to the scriptures. The problem is getting the people to the Bible. And I just have this belief that when we are far and distant from God's word, then we will be far and distant from God's will. But I believe that if you are closer to God's word, then you will also be closer to God's will. But I also believe that if you are in God's word, you will be in God's will. And so the question for us today is, what is the relationship you have with the Word of God? Are you you distant? Or are you maybe around it? Or are you in it? Spiritual change and maturity, transformation, Christ-likeness happens as God's Word to us begins to do this incredibly deep work in us. And isn't that the way it's supposed to be, that the way God has designed his word, his word was meant to do a deep work in us because the word of God is not for God. The word of God is for us. If you ever think about things that you have to write down, there's a good chance it's because you don't want to forget that thing that 
you're thinking about or thing that you have to do. And so maybe you write things on post-its and you put them in your room or you you write something on your phone so that you don't forget. You write things in your journal, a to-do list, on your computer, whatever it is. You know, you ever find yourself writing things down just so that you don't forget? Well, when it comes to the word of God, why does God choose to have his word written? Is it because God forgets? Is it so that God will remember who he is? Is it so that God will remember this plan that he has? Or is it actually for us? So when God decided to to breathe the scriptures into being, it wasn't because he has short-term memory. It wasn't so that he doesn't forget. It's so that you and I in the church and the world will not forget who he is. God has written his word down for us, not for God. So that we don't forget who he is. So that we don't forget who we are. So that we don't forget whose we are. So that we don't forget what he has done. So that we don't forget his son, who, Jesus, who came down from heaven to earth. So that we don't forget the story of sin and rebellion and our separation from God. So that we don't forget the story that God sent his only begotten son. And he came fully righteous, perfect, and he lived a sinless life. Yet he was crucified on the cross, not for his sin, but because of ours. So that we don't forget that. And the Bible is not only to save us. The Bible is to shape us. Because after God reconciles us, he then renews us. He does this incredibly deep work in us to make us and shape us to become more and more like him. It's the word of God. So that we can remember, so that we would not forget. What a gift the the word of God is to the church, amen? What a gift the word of God is to you. If you have an access to, if you have a Bible, what a gift that is to you. Psalm 1, verse 1 through 3, I think this should be on the screen for us. Psalm 1, the opening verse, the opening verses of, of Psalm, this incredible book says, blessed, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Verse 3, that person, and this is not excluding you, it's inviting you. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, and listen to this, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Talking about Middle East scorching heat when it's like 120 degrees dry heat and leaves would wither and trees wouldn't bear fruit. He's saying that the psalmist is saying that the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, one whose life is not distant from the word of God but in the word of God. He's saying that man, that woman is like a tree planted by streams of water and when it's the season it will produce incredible fruit and the leaves will not wither here's why because no matter what happens around that tree it's got everything the tree needs the tree's got every kind of nourishment it needs to actually bear fruit and not wither in other words the one who is rooted and planted in the word of god in the book is like a tree that finds all of its nourishments, allowing it to experience proper growth and change with every season bearing fruit. So the word of God 
You know, when I was growing up, when people would say, you need to read your Bible and memorize scripture, it, be, it just, it just sounded like such a burden to me. Maybe to you too, right? But the word of God, and according to Psalm and, and all throughout different parts of the, the Bible, the, it doesn't say that burdensome is the one. Burdened is the one. It says, no, blessed is the one. Amen? Blessed is the one. In other words, that word is happy. Happy is the one. The word of God is not to burden us, but to actually bless us. What a gift. What a gift that God would actually choose to take time to give us his word. And this is what 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 says. And this is Apostle Paul speaking and giving this letter to Timothy, who's kind of a disciple. Paul is, is, is now kind of is in his last days of life and last days of ministry. And he's really longing to see Timothy. And now Timothy is growing up and he's maturing. And he's in a city called Ephesus. And he's going to be doing ministry, gospel work in Ephesus. And, and Paul is really encouraging and exhorting and, and wanting to lift up Timothy. And he's kind of giving his last words here. So th- this means a lot. And so he, he, he's, he's actually saying, Timothy, I want you to be a, a man of God that is complete, equipped for every good work, gospel preaching. I want you to, to, to mirror the likeness of Christ wherever you go. And, and he says in verse 16 that he says, it's the scripture that's going to get you there. All, he said, all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is breathed out by God. I think that's one of those lines that you probably shouldn't um, Pass by too quickly. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's one of those, one of those verses that should just, just take some time for it to just to sink in that the idea that all scripture, not just some, not just the ones we like, right? Because if you're like me and tempted, we, we like to pick and choose which scriptures we want to listen to and obey. We choose which scriptures we like and what we don't like. There's scriptures that we posterize, right? Psalm 20, the Lord is my shepherd. It's beautiful, right? Like Romans where it says, you know, God works for the good of those. Oh, I love that God. You know, Jeremiah, I, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Love it. Love it, right? But like nobody's picking Leviticus, right? Like that's not your favorite verse, right? Nobody's picking like Revelation, right? It's just we, we pick and choose which one we decide to have authority and influence on in our life. But yet Paul's saying, Timothy, no, no, no. All scripture, every word, every word, even Leviticus, is breathed out by God. The idea that God breathed out the scriptures is incredible to me. Why? Because first breath is intimate. Because if, if I don't know you that well, I don't want to hear you breathing. I, like, I don't want to hear your breath. Or maybe I want to hear you breathe, like, you know, I want you, to, I, don't want, I want you to live, but I don't want to, like, hear your breath, and I don't want to feel your breath. You know what I mean? But it's different when my four-year-old son is sleeping in my arms, and he's, like, snoring. He's breathing heavy. The breath is all over me. But I'm not going to push him away because that's my son. Because actually that's normal, right? Breath is this intimate thing. Like you don't just share your breath with anybody. Amen? I hope, I hope everyone says amen, right? Breath is this intimate thing where like 
maybe just for married people, right, and, and your children, like you can, you, you, you can, you know, feel their breath on you and, and, and you, you breathe on them or whatever, but it's this intimate thing when there's, there's a sense that you are close to them and that God would breathe his word to us. Breath is not only intimate, but breath is actually life-giving. Breath is, is life-giving. When you think about someone who's like unconscious and not breathing, what you do is you give them CPR, And at that moment, you might not even know that person, but you're supposed to put your mouth on their mouth and breathe life into them so that they can come back to life. Breath has a way of bringing things back to life. One of the ways to describe the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was the word ruach, which is the word breath or wind. It's the Holy Spirit. And it ought to remind us of Genesis chapter 2 when God created Adam. The Bible says that God created Adam from the dust of the ground. And then what did he do? He breathed. I'm not making this up. He breathed, he breathed into Adam's nostrils. Right? And then Adam came to life. There's something about that breath that is intimate. There's something about the breath that's life-giving. And when Paul is using the word that all scripture is breathed out by God, it wasn't a filler word. It wasn't an accidental word. It was an intentional word to show Timothy, to show the church that when God speaks this, it's an intimate word coming from an, coming from an intimate place of God. And it's actually giving life to the people who read it. All scripture is breathed out by God. So the question is this, what kind of a role does the scripture have in your life? What kind of a role does this book have in your life. Uh, I, I think about three kinds of people. One is the kind of person where this book is simply under them and you're over them. You're, you're, you're over the Bible and the Bible is under you. Meaning that you, you, you don't really have a relationship with the word of God. In fact, you, you, you seem to live your life in a way where you have more authority. You are sovereign. You rule over the word of God. Regardless of what the word seems to say, I make my own decisions. I know where I'm going. I know I have wisdom. I know what I'm doing. And I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to live my own life. And, 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 and yes, I, I agree with some parts of the Bible, but... It has no authority in my life. The Bible is under you. The second kind of person is when the Bible is beside you. And what I mean by that is as you're going through life, it's just simply beside you. At some times in life, the word of God is in front of you. But at times in your life, you just decide to do your own thing again and the word of God is behind you. This is the kind of person in which the word of God is simply just advice to you every now and then. Or where you, you say, you know, I've got a three-year plan and a five-year plan for my life. I'm good. I'm set. Things are going great. I don't need God. But then every now and then you go back to the word and you, and you pick out certain verses that you like because you want the benefits of God's word. But you don't want to be led by it every single day. So at times the word of God is in front of you. But at times the word of God is behind you. Because you just want it to be beside you. But there's a third kind of person. The third kind of person where the word of God is not under you or beside you, but the word of God is above you. And what that means is that the word of God is your authority, not your advice. This is the kind of person that says, 
that says, all of my life and all of my days, for as many days as God gives me, this is going to be the rule over me. This is going to be how I determine how I want to live my life. It's going to determine how I go about my work, how I live my singleness, how I, live, how I go about my marriage, how I go about parenting, how I go about treating others, how I live in the city and in the community. This is, this is everything to me. That's when the word of God is your authority and not just advice. So the question is this, where is the word of God in your life? Is it under you where you don't even have a relationship with it? Is it beside you where sometimes it's in front of you and helping you, but at times you just put it behind you? Or are you daily going before God and saying, God, lead me today. Lead me today. Teach me, show me, Guide me, direct me. May your word be a lamp unto my feet. May it shine your beautiful light in my darkness. And my prayer is that the word of God will not be under you, will not be beside you, but the word of God will be above you. That the word of God, if we are to change, friends, the word of God must be our ultimate authority because we will never change if we decide the word of God is going to be under us. We will never change if we decide the word of God is only going to be in front of us when we like it. But we will change when we put ourselves under the authority of God's word. I think the first one, therefore, I think the first point is that the word of God must be our ultimate authority. Our ultimate authority. When we wake up, we must decide by whose word will I live by. My word or God's word? My way or God's way? And if we want to change, God's word must be our authority to live God's way. But second is this, that that the word of God is not only our ultimate authority, but the word of God actually plays a role in stirring our affections to Jesus. In stirring our affections to Jesus. I don't know if you guys have taken the Myers-Briggs, but, you know, if you guys... I've taken it. You guys know that one of the things is to, to, de- to determine whether you're a thinker or a feeler, right? You guys, anybody know what I'm talking about? I'm a T. I'm a thinker, right? I have like two emotions, so I'm not much of a feeler. But, but, but there are some in the room that may be more feelers, and you're like, well, I don't want just to have this logical relationship with God and just this relationship with God where it's just all about, you know, just reading the Bible and just knowing information. I want it to stir me, and I'm telling you, the Word of God actually stirs our affections back to Him. I, I remember kind of being in the church in the mid and late 1990s, uh, and, I, and I grew up in Southern California, so I'm not sure what the Midwest culture, church culture was like back in the mid-late 90s, uh, but I'm, I'm also from a Korean American immigrant church uh, in the 90s in Southern California. So again, I don't know what it's like over here, but let me just tell you what it was like. I remember when I became a Christian and I was in youth group back in the mid-late 90s, Every single weekend, there was a Korean church, a a different Korean church every weekend that would host revival nights. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Revival nights where different youth groups would just, they would would get a guest speaker, they would get a guest worship band, and and they would have, um, and this is back when transparency machines were how we used to do worship. Anybody, Anybody know what I'm talking about, right? But, but we, used to, we used to pack out youth group uh, rooms and, and, and get all these different churches together. But it wasn't like once in a while. It was almost every single week. We would jump from one church to another church 
at these revival meetings, revival nights, as if revival was something you can plan. But we loved it because we loved getting together with other churches. We loved guest speakers. We loved guest worship teams. But the problem was they called it revival nights. And so all of these young people back in where I was from, we grew up chasing revival as if revival is something you chase. Amen by myself. And here's the idea that if we can just get that worship team, we would experience revival. If I can just get that speaker, if we can just get that pastor, you ever said to yourself, if we, if we can just have the right kind of church or the right kind of leadership or, or the right kind of culture or the right programs or the right worship team or the right speaker, we would experience revival. There's so many people even now that, that flock to these worship teams and these churches and, because they want revival. And I think by God's grace, and, and maturing a little bit through time, um, I've learned something about revival. And, and actually, I think I found the key to revival. Anybody interested? The key to revival. All right? I'm going I'm to give you guys a phrase. And I don't know at what moment this phrase came to me, but this phrase has stuck with me for some time, for years. And I remember telling people that this is the key to revival. I'm going to give you three words, okay? This is the key. You guys ready? Read Bible, revival. Read Bible, revival. And I know that's bad grammar. It kind of sounds like Mr. Miyagi, like this, this ancient Eastern thing between a master and a disciple. Read Bible, revival. <laughs> that, that's how I imagine it in my head. I don't know. You probably thought that too, right? But that's how I see it playing. I read Bible, revival. But you know what I want to show you is actually I didn't, I didn't make that up. I want to point you to Psalm 19, verse 7 and 8. Here in the scriptures it says that the law of the Lord is perfect. Here's, it should be here on the screen. The law of the Lord is perfect. And what is that next word? Reviving. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. In other words, the law of the Lord is perfect, bringing revival to the soul. How does revival happen in the soul? It happens by reading your Bible. Read Bible, revival. And then it goes on. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise and simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. What the psalmist is saying is that the word of God is not just to fill our heads with knowledge. It actually stirs our heart to Jesus. It actually does something to our soul and does something to our heart. It actually revives our soul and rejoices our heart. But I have a lot of people that have come to me in, in, over the last several years of being in ministry and say, well, Pastor James, but... But if I can just go to this conference and if I could just go to that church, if I can just go to that guest speaker, I want a, I want a direct word from God. I want a prophetic word from God. I want to experience God. And I love what John Piper says. He says, if you want to see God, read your Bible. And then he says, if you want to hear God, read your Bible out loud. I love that. No, seriously. <laughs> You should, you should try this this week. Like, you know, because most of us read quietly. And if you're like, man, I want to hear God, though, just read it out loud. 
And I think it's John Knox that said that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. That when the Bible speaks, God speaks. So not only is the scripture our authority, not only does it stir our affections, but it also brings us into alignment. You guys know that those are all begin with A's. Authority, affections, alignment. And what I mean by that is, is Paul actually lays out for us in, in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, after saying all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, right? He says it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Those four things is actually talking about bringing us into alignment. It actually does a deep work of changing us into the image of Christ. Uh, Paul is actually writing to Timothy, and when he says that the scripture is breathed out by God, and he can teach teach you uh, uh, reproof, uh, give reproof, correction, and training, so that the man of God may be complete, uh, equipped for every good work. He's not talking about just uh, having some ministry skills. He's not talking about how to be a good preacher. He's actually talking about a life of godliness in which when someone looks at the gospel minister, they can see the gospel. They can see character of Jesus. They can see the likeness of Jesus. Paul, uh, in the beginning of chapter 3, is listing all of these qualities of people who have not been changed by the gospel. He says, understand this, that in the last days... There will be times of difficulty, right? For people will be lovers of self, of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And this is against this backdrop, Paul is writing to Timothy saying here's the gift of God's word so that we can be changed from all of these things. And he says to Timothy, you have followed my teaching. And he says my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. He talks about enduring through suffering. He talks about the godly life. So what Paul is talking about here is there's four things a scripture does, not so that we can be amazingly gifted pastors, but he's talking about four things a scripture does for all Christians so that they can be godly and mature and complete. You know that God's desire for you is at the end of your days that you would be a complete man or woman of God. Not incomplete, but complete. That there is an increasing sense you are becoming more like Jesus every single day. That's God's desire. First, Paul says to Timothy that the word of God is profitable for teaching. I'm going to go through these pretty quickly. First is teaching. The original Greek uh, definition is basically to instruct or to tell someone what to do. The word of God is not just for information to fill up our heads. It's instruction giving us direction in our lives. It teaches us what God's will actually is. I know we can't fathom it, but can you imagine if there was Christianity without the Bible, how would we know what God's will is? The Bible teaches us what's pleasing to the Lord, what's honoring to him, who he is and what he's like. It teaches us 
His will, who we are, whose we are. The story of sin, the story of separation, the story of salvation, the story of sanctification. It tells us about our origins. It tells us about our destination. It reveals God's good plan for us. It teaches us. But secondly, Paul says to Timothy, it's not only good for teaching, but also profitable for rebuke or reproof. The original Greek definition here is to examine carefully and to expose any error. To expose error. When it says the word rebuke, I have this image in my mind that I'm trying to get out of you if you're there too. I have this image in my mind that the word of God is, is used to bash people and point the finger at people and to rebuke. It's not designed to make us a rebuking kind of people by nature. Because what Paul is saying is the one who's doing the rebuke is actually not me. It's the word. In other words, the word is designed. If teaching is designed to show you what God's will is, then rebuke is to show you what God's will is not. And the word of God will do that. You don't need a pastor to come tell you. You don't need another accountability partner to tell you. What you need mainly, primarily, is the word of God to show you what God's will is, but to also show you what God's will is not. It will tell you, friend, that's not how you go about your marriage. That's not how you parent and raise your kids. That's not how you go about your work. That's not how you treat a brother. It will tell you. That's reproof. It will tell you. It'll, it'll, it'll expose the arrow. It'll shine the light in the midst of a dark place. That's actually a gift. When we're blind to our own sin, when we don't even know what sin is, the Bible teaches us. And when we're in error, the Bible will reveal that to us. So I love, I love the implication here that when we go to God's word, don't just study the word, but let the word study you. What, what I mean by that is when you go to the word, don't just try to figure out, okay, what is it saying and, and pick it all apart. But sit there and let the word of God begin to enter into you. Let it pull you in. Let it come and let it enter your living room. And let it enter every room in your life. And let it begin to show you areas of your life that the word of God can actually help change you. That's what it does. The word of God is teaching us, but the word of God can also rebuke us. What a gift that is. Paul also says to Timothy that the word of God is not only used for teaching and rebuke, but also for correcting. Correcting. I think in this case, it's, it's really good to know the original Greek word. It's, it's epa ana ortho, which, which ortho is where we get the word or, like, words like orthodontist. The word ortho is basically to align or to make straight. So if you go to an orthodontist, their primary goal is to make your teeth straight, to align your teeth. And so Paul is saying here by using the word correcting, it's saying to make straight or to make right, to align everything in your life that is out of place. That's good. You ever felt like your life was kind of out of place at times? You ever felt like with people you've been out of place? You ever felt like in your heart you've been out of place? You ever felt like in your thoughts you've been out of place? What the word of God does in correcting this epa ana ortho is it, it, it sees what, what in your life is, is not in line and it begins to align things together and to make that which is crooked straight again. 
I think it's Sinclair Ferguson that said that the word of God doesn't say everything about everything, but it does say something about everything. The word of God has something to say about everything in your life. When you're in a place in your life, when things are not in place and out of place and not in alignment, the word of God has a way of bringing things back into order, bringing things back into the place it should be with God, with every human relationship, with singleness and marriage and parenting, with our work, with our character, with our thoughts, with our actions, and with every area that is broken in us, God brings back into alignment. That's good news. That when we go to the word of God, we can actually expect God to do that for us. God, show me areas of my life that are out of place. And show me and teach me what your will is. God changes us through his word. And you and I have access to that word every moment of the day. All scripture is breathed out by God. The last thing Paul says is not only is the word of God for teaching and rebuking and correcting, but also training. That word training, the definition is to discipline with the intent of forming proper habits of behavior. Um, Training in righteousness, training to to be upright. It's it's really talking about training to be godly and mature and and pure and Christ-like people. This training leads to changing. This training leads to changing. And and I thought, when I first read this, I thought this training referred to athletes who are going into some kind of competition. Like, you know, people that are training for the Olympics or people that are in collegiate teams and training for uh, an event and things like that. But I began to realize that every commentary was saying that the word used for training here, Paul used a word that wasn't talking about athletes going into training. He's talking about a word used for parents raising children. And I thought, that's a, that's a unique way to, de- to describe it. I guess we are kind of, in a way, training our children. In, in a way, our, our four-year-old son, we're training Benjamin. It, it's, an, it's the idea of a parent taking a child from infancy to adulthood, a process of change, a process of growth, because when they're an infant, they don't know how to do anything, Right? They can't eat by themselves, they can't sleep by themselves, or maybe they can sleep by, they can't, they can't, you know, clothe themselves, they can't wash themselves. You know, Benjamin now, um, praise God that he can actually dress himself and he can actually shower by himself, he can brush his teeth. There's just a lot of things that he can do now that he wasn't able to do a year ago. But we didn't just let that happen just magically or mystically. We had, to, we had to show him. We had to teach him. We had to guide him. We had to model it for him. We had to correct him, right? We had to train him. But it's not even over yet. He's only four years old. He needs to learn how to ride a bike. He needs to learn how to read by himself. He needs to learn how to eat without spilling stuff. Right? He, needs to, he needs to learn how to, you know, one day go to school and get along with kids and how to li- listen to teachers. And he needs to, you know, uh, you know, one day learn how to shave. But, you know, I, don't, I, I like, you know, not much. We're Asian, so may- maybe not. But he needs to learn how to, you know, right? Just all kinds of things that a parent does in training their children to adulthood. And that's the idea here that Paul is talking to Timothy about, saying the word of God is useful for training the the man and the woman of God from a place of infancy to maturity. And that's God's desire for you. 
See, that when you came to know Christ, by his grace, we didn't come to Christ mature. Amen? We came to Christ like babies. We came to Christ like infants. We, had, we barely knew how to live this Christian life. And yet God is holding us. God is teaching us. God is at times showing us error. God is correcting us. God is training us. God is patient with us in bringing us from infancy to adulthood. And one day God will complete it. But right now we're in this process of change. And one of the primary resources God uses is his word. Is his word. The word of God saves us, and the Word of God shapes us. So let me ask you a few questions. What does God want you to learn this week through His Word? What error or sin does God want you to see this week through His Word? What are some changes that need to be made this week through His Word? And what scripture are you applying this week as you're in his word? Many of you guys know, might know Pastor Rick Warren. He has this quote. He says, the spirit of God uses the word of God to make us like the son of God. And what a fitting quote this is for our series on can we really change? And obviously we're not trying to take 12 weeks to tell you the answer is Yes. But we're here to tell you that the way God does change us is not magical or mystical. It's sometimes mundane, the regular daily diet of getting God's word in us. The spirit of God uses the word of God to make us like the son of God. I encourage you this week, these four incredibly easy steps, all right? They all begin with R. First one, the first step is to read to read your Bible. I would encourage you to read it. Maybe if you set aside 15 minutes a day, read the Bible, maybe a chapter at a time, but read your Bible once without stopping. And then I I encourage you, go back and read it again and read a little bit slower, but this time maybe ask God, God, what are some words that you want to bring to my attention? What are some words or phrases or things that are popping out and grabbing and pulling you in? Read the Word of God. Secondly is this, reflect reflect. It means that you don't just read the Bible and say, okay, now, you know, I've done, my, I've done my quiet time. I've done my checklist. I've done my daily duty. You know, this, that's my goal is this year to read 15 minutes a day. That's, that's not the point. The point is after you read, you have to reflect. You have to ask the questions of interpretation. What does this text mean? What, what does this text teach me about God? What is the significance What's the good news? How does it point me to Jesus? And how does it relate to my life? After you spend some time reflecting, then move on to response. Response, this is application. As you read the word of God this week, ask yourself this question on that particular day and moment. What can I do today? What can I do today to actually apply this, maybe not perfectly, but to put it in practice, to put it in motion, like someone who's being trained. How can I actually try this out with the help of God? I, I, I don't encourage you to have a list of five or ten things to do, but just one thing 
Begin with one thing. What is it that God has you read, has you reading? What, what is it that God is showing you in your reflection? And how is it that God wants you to respond? And the last R is simply repeat. Repeat. Repetition. I'm pretty sure that nobody in here just eats one gigantic meal once a week and doesn't eat for the next six days. I'm pretty sure that we all eat every single day. There's a repetition that needs to happen. So it is with the word of God. So many, I remember in college, I remember being up like five hours one night because I had this encounter with this cultic group on campus that was really trying to lead people astray and using, twisting the word of God. And I remember almost being deceived and so kind of uh, wrestling with a lot of different passages. I actually went back to my apartment and for like five hours, I just read through the whole New Testament. But we're so tempted just to have one big chunk of the Bible for us and thinking that we'll be fine for the next few days. Or that if I come to church on a Sunday and hear the preaching, I'll be good for the next week. I want us to get into a repetition in which the reading of God's word, the reflection of God's word, the response of God's word becomes a daily habit for us. When these habits just start to become a part of who we are. And see, if you want to change, read the Bible, reflect, respond, and repeat. They say that if you read 15 minutes of the Bible every single day, you'll finish the Bible in one year. 15 minutes of Bible every single day, and you'll finish in one year. I thought, man, what would our lives look like if we, if we didn't just do that for one year, but every year? What, what, if we just, what, what, if, what if it was 30 minutes for the next 30 days or 30 minutes for the next 30 months? And, but what if that became years? And what if that became till the day we meet Christ. I imagine our lives being so full of fellowship with Jesus. I imagine our lives being so rich with maturity. But more importantly, imagine the glory that we can give to God just by being in the word. Before I close, I want to just encourage you guys that when Jesus came 2,000 years ago, Jesus didn't come with this arrogance and saying, I don't need the word. In fact, I'm going to write the word. He didn't come with this arrogance and say, I, I don't need that. I, I know all things, though he did. When Jesus came from heaven to earth, it says in Matthew chapter 4, that when Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And that's kind of obvious, right? I don't know why they included that. Of course you're going to be hungry. But in verse 3, And the tempter said to him, If you are the Son of God, Command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, and Jesus answered, It is written, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. That's like one of my favorite Bible verses. Man shall not live by bread alone. And I'm, I'm glad that I included the word alone because I love bread. Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. But every word that comes from the mouth of God. When Jesus was fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was obviously hungry, the Bible tells us. And the enemy came to him and said, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. I thought, Jesus, you could have just tackled that first part. 
and just told the devil that you are the son of God. And here's why. Pointing to all the Old Testament prophecies and convince the devil that you are the son of God. But Jesus doesn't use that approach. He doesn't try to get into a debating battle about who is the son of God and who's not. But he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. What this is saying is that even Jesus, when he came down, he didn't come with arrogance and pride. He came with humility. And you know how Jesus lived his life? He lived his life here on earth holding on to every word, all scripture, from the mouth of God. Where does breath come from? From the mouth. He holds on to all scripture that's been breathed out by God. He holds on to every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Not only from the time in which he's uh, tempted by the enemy, but to the time he died on the cross, Jesus held on to every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. He says, it is written in church. I want to just encourage you, if you want to experience change, stop chasing revivals and conferences. If I can just have a discipler, if I can just have the right small group, if I can just be at the right campus, and I'm telling you, God wants to use the Bible to teach you, to rebuke us, to correct us, and to train us. Why? so that we would be men and women who are complete in Christ, ready and equipped to do every good work. So may that be your prayer this week. May your prayer this week be, God, do that in me. May your word to me do an incredible work in me. If you can bow your heads. The late German pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, somebody once asked him, Pastor, why do you read the Bible? And he said, because I'm a Christian. Therefore, every day in which I do not penetrate more deeply into the knowledge of God's word and holy scriptures is a lost day for me. I can only move forward with certainty upon the firm ground of the word of God. In church, I pray this over us, that this would be your life, this would be our life, that when we come to the word of God, as the psalmist once put it, that the word of God would be more precious than gold and sweeter than honey. May it change you. May this word change me. And may this word change our church.